It's great to be here. But tonight is a little bit different um, because I'm filling in for Maddie, and I just got off retreat. Just got home yesterday, so it ought to be interesting. Um, so the title of tonight's talk, I like to record. If people don't want to be recorded, just let me know. The title of tonight's talk is The Mindful Athlete, colon, uh, Pursuing Excellence in Wisdom with Grace and Ease. And so you might say, okay, okay, am I an athlete or am I not an athlete? I think that the reason I'm giving this talk is because a lot of people, even though I've taught different people, they're very interested in performance, and they're very interested in mindfulness. And, of course, there's mindfulness this, there's mindfulness that. And so a lot of times here, when you come here, we talk about mindfulness, basically um, the four foundations of mindfulness and how to cultivate mindfulness. But we don't necessarily tell you, okay, now that you learn how to be mindful, when you go home or if you play a sport or how many, how many of you, you do, uh, do marathons or, or play uh, a weekend athletes or warriors, you know, you do something even playing Tai Chi, how many people, you know, so you're doing some activity, right? Or you have some relative that's doing it, probably uh, children or relatives. So this idea of being an athlete is not just for athletes, but it's a metaphor. And it's interesting, when I work with my executive executives doing executive coaching, all they want to do is talk about, well, how did Phil Jackson deal with team development? How did he deal with uh, sibling rivalry? They're interested in, in sport, and we all are interested in sport because there's something about sports that is magical in terms of we're actually seeing people on a physical and mental level, although it's usually framed as a mental level, of moving beyond boundaries or doing something exciting. And we like to root for the, for the home team, the underdog. And I remember several years ago giving a talk here because I've been giving talks here forever. And I remember the gentleman was, was had anguish around the Red Sox having not won a championship. <laughs> and I suggested to him that, you know, maybe it's about just rooting for the home team, whether they win a lot or, or lose. But, you know, just hang in there. And, of course, they won some championships. So he's probably thinking I had some clairvoyance, but I didn't. I was just really talking about how could I relate to him and his suffering. So... So my, so when I think about the mindful athlete in terms of metaphor for all of us, it's really about our lives because the good thing about athletic competition is you have a beginning and an end. And the, only part, and the thing about life is we have a beginning and we have an end, and part of the problem is we don't know when that's going to happen, so some of us worry about that. But the other part of it is it's just day in, day out, over, over, and over. So we don't have these intervals where we can actually measure well, how we're doing, right? That, that, that makes sense? But I can assure you it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so on, on some level, it, it behooves us to really go inside and really to self-reflect and really examine how we're living. And this is what this practice is about. It's a practice of practicing freedom or a path of purification, you might say. And, and the purification has to do with uh, purifying our perception. 
being able to see things as they are and not as we would like them to be or understanding that a lot of the time we are projecting things on to raw data and as a consequence we're not really seeing clearly and there's more confusion and it's a way of relating to life in a habitual way that's not so effective sometimes. And I don't know if you know this, but the mind has a mind of its own. But most people, I think, they don't wanna want to know what the mind is doing. So a lot of us, and including myself, sometimes we don't want to see things. So on an unconscious level, we, we stay unaware. But I think it was Woody Allen that said, he didn't mind dying. He just didn't want to be there when it happened. <laughs> so I think that, that's kind of like us. It's like, okay, ignorance is bliss. We don't want to get into things. But reality is that it's by investigating, it's by exploring, it's by seeing how this mind-body process works, whether it's in the meditation center here or wherever we are. Because my contention is that sitting practice, uh, Insight meditation practice is not just sitting or walking meditation. It's a 24-7 endeavor because it doesn't take much to really tune into, okay, you know, what am I focused on? What's, my, what's going on with my mind? What am I focused on? Is it easy? Is it, is it excited? Is it expansive? How am I feeling? Uh, what am I doing and why? So there's always this ability to just observe inside uh, what the mind is doing, but also what we're paying attention to, because we know what we're paying attention to, but we don't necessarily know what we're not paying attention to. So when you play a sport or when you get into something, it's important to have a, a context in which you're using mindfulness. Okay, so we develop mindfulness. Or we're mindful of the breath. Or we're mindful of how we're going to relate to the boss because the boss has a, or one of our loved ones because they have this tendency, they have this hat, they have this gift of pushing a button and we react to it. There's a lot of reactivity. So how do we actually start to create a process that allows us to see how we're living and then, then to make adjustments? Does it make sense what I'm talking about? So this is kind of off the fly because I've been doing some research and I, I like to do this sometimes and bring in things that I'm researching. So I'm trying to create a what I would call a vision of possibility. So I have a couple of quotes here that I'd like to read because I want us to get get out of it's helpful not to have this compartmentalist you know, putting everything in compartments. Like, okay, this is work, this is love, this is play, this is meditation, and then this is the rest of life. So the idea is that even though we sit, we can create a way of being, being mindful, and, and being mindful in a certain way that allows us to carry the practice into our daily affairs. And we talk about clear comprehension and mindfulness, you know, being, being clearly comprehending what the purpose is for what we're doing, clearly, comprehend, clearly comprehending the best way to do it or what we call suitability and clear comprehension of domain of practice, which is what I'm talking about. It's not just keeping the, the object in mind, but keeping the mind in mind and understanding what kind of attitude, what kind of mood we have. Because when I was growing up, when you had an attitude, that was not positive. <laughs> that was like, he got an attitude, she got an attitude. And so I hate to tell you, but we all have attitudes. And like everything else, they change. And so on some level, it's understanding what kind of attitude we have. So here's a... 
here's a Zen po poet who said, and it's called The Master of Living. A person who is a master in the art of living makes little distinction between their work and their play, their labor and their leisure, their mind and their body, their education and their recreation, their love and their religion. They hardly know which is which. They simply pursue their vision of excellence and grace and whatever they do, leaving others to decide whether they are working or playing. To them, they are always doing both. So that's, that's what I'm talking about. And some of those, can we bring the same quality of interest to something that we're not so interested in or something that we have this perception that it's going to be a struggle or it's going to be stressful? Can we bring that same intentionality to everything? So that can we be uh, non-discriminating in all of our experience? And so that's, that's a challenge. So we, we talk about how to do that here. And so, well, why do we do that? Well, I'll read a, another. Um, it's a parable. It's called Two Wolves, a Cherokee Parable. An old Cherokee chief was teaching his grandson about life. A fight is going on inside me, he said to the boy. It is a terrible fight, and it is between two wolves. One is evil. He is anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, self-doubt, and ego. The other is good. He is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. This same fight is going on inside you. I bet the little boy didn't know that. And inside every other person, too. The grandson thought about it for a minute and then asked the grandfather, which wolf will win? The old chief simply replied, the one you feed. So the author is unknown. So one way of looking at being mindful or mindfulness is to really be mindful of what is wholesome, what is unwholesome, what is skillful, what is unskillful. And so... When we talk about it, when you really think about what it takes to be mindful, what you're really talking about is there has to be enough faith to actually make the effort. So what mindfulness does in terms of what we call the spiritual powers or connecting the power, higher power, is that, you know, you have to have enough faith to even engage in trying to be mindful, engage in looking inside. And so some of us have... Uh, too much faith and we become kind of so like you know it's too much faith so one of the things we talk about around here is balancing the faith with wisdom with common sense and so you, you if you want to watch the talking heads on TV there's a lot of people that have so much wisdom that you know they know everything and there's no humility so there's this balancing act that mindfulness does in terms of the quality of of faith because without faith we won't make the effort and the interesting thing about effort is we talk about effort or diligence around here and one way to describe diligence is a steady enthusiastic poised engagement of, of an activity specifically of a, um, of a wholesome activity and so it's hard to do that it's hard to make an effort if you don't think it's going to get you what you want or you don't think it's going to matter and so whether you're an athlete trying to figure out your jump shot or, or um, how to spike the ball in volleyball or, or how to hit a curve, 
it's it's the same drill. You know, there has to be a willingness to work, to put in the effort. And we get achievement normally, usually by sustained effort. And I can tell you from my experience working with with athletes, you have some people, and I can speak of my, my own experience, that you'll work on something and then then doubt gets into the mind or we make a mistake and we say, okay, well, I'm not any, any good at this. Or, you know, I don't have enough talent. Or, you know, why bother? I don't want to do this anyway. How many people have had that experience? Or everything, right? And so all that is 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 an opinion that's based on fear, based on one of the hindrances we talk about. It's a negative, it's an unwholesome mind state. And so if we understand that, so then the mindfulness and the right effort is is really the how do we transform that or how do we get to a point where we say, okay, that might be true, but let me see for myself. Because that's what the Buddha always talks about is don't take my word for it. You can have faith, but see for yourself, but at least give yourself the opportunity. So having the faith to even investigate, because I don't know if you notice, it takes courage to kind of look at this stuff. Because what, 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 what we're asking each other to do is look at our stuff. Look at things that are unpleasant. And, you know, it's like, I don't know about you, but my mind, if it anticipates something being unpleasant, it's going to avoid or withdraw. And if it anticipates something being pleasant, it's going to move towards it. So there's approach and there's avoidance. And if it doesn't know what's going on, it's going to be like somebody who's in the fight or flight, the freeze response. It's going to be still and be confused and say, you know, like the day in the headlights. I don't really know what's going on, but I'm not doing anything. I'm just sitting here trying to figure out how to get out of this one. And so we understand that that's what the mind does. And so through faith and effort and then the mindfulness of being mindful and really mindfulness, you can, you can describe mindfulness a lot of ways, but one of the ways I like to describe mindfulness is presence of mind, remembering what we're supposed to be doing, not forgetting so it's presence of mind, but it also has to be led by wisdom. It has to be led by clearly knowing what we're doing and what the principles involved in what we're doing. So, for instance, if we're talking about relationship, because that seems to be an interesting top topic, work, love, and play, and relationship, there's certain principles that are involved in relationship. In this practice, we talk about uh, right speech, right action, right livelihood, or morality, especially the right speech, speak in a way that, that creates harmony, not divisiveness. So idle gossip, lying, and harsh speech, those things are not encouraged. But, you know, from a vantage point of relationship, you know, our beliefs become our thoughts, our thoughts become our words, our words become our actions, our actions become our habits, our habits become our values, our values become our destiny. Now, that's a quote from from uh, Gandhi. Now, so the interesting thing is, so if we're interested in having relationship or being in community, then one of the principles that are involved in that is think win-win. So our belief system is this idea of abundance, not scarcity. So that we start thinking win-win, and then we seek to understand rather than be understood. So I think I read somewhere where we should listen 70% and speak only 30 of course, the only problem with the speaking is that's only 7% of the communication. 93% of it is nonverbal, like tonality and body language. So, so you get what I'm saying? So if we have, okay, think win-win, seek to understand, then to be understood, 
and then this idea of synergy, the whole, the whole is greater than the sum of the individual parts, then we have some principles in which we can actually engage in conversation. So being mindful, the mindfulness in itself is not going to be enough. It'll tell us things and see things, but if we understand that these are the principles involved in engagement with other people, you know, you know, a mind with non-greed, a mind with non-hatred, a mind with non-confusion, that that is going to color everything we do, and that there's a, these principles. So if we know, okay, so I'm not thinking when when I have this, you know, there's not enough for all of us, and I'm getting mine. I don't care about you. Then we need to see that we're really not seeing clearly. We're seeing in a distorted fashion, and if we can see that, then we can change that, but that takes effort, it takes clearly knowing, and it also means that the mind has to be pretty stable for us to be present, because if it's, if it's engaged in, in, in some distractions, then it's not there. I, I'm fond of saying to my student-athletes, it's a good idea if your mind and body occupy the same space and time. That would be really helpful. Because otherwise, you know, your mind's out here and your body's here. And that usually doesn't work out very well. And you can see when, when you can see some of these activities where someone, I mean, it's amazing. I watched the NCAAs, and there were at least two plays, and actually there was a professional play as well, where it was a critical part of the game, and the person got the ball, you know, the ball was thrown to them, and they tried to shoot the ball before they got it. And the ball goes out of bounds. That's what I call your mind is out there and your body's here because your mind is saying, oh, oh, you know, it's afraid. Oh, we better shoot this because I hear four steps and we, we got to make this. Instead of just catch the ball and, and lay it up. So a lot of times I say if you get your mind out of the way, the body will be fine. <laughs> but it's understanding how do you do that? How do you train your mind and how do, you, how do you get to a point? Because there's also this thing about learning, practicing, and performing because I study ex expertise and this is what they say. So the learning part is like the wisdom piece or understanding what the basic fundamentals, but also what are the essential things to focus on in activity. And so it's the learning part, then we practice it. So you actually have to practice, practice, practice. And then the performance for athletics is easy, but for us, I would say the performance is when the crap hits the fan, and, you know, we go home and you got to do something. And, you know, now is the time and you get confronted with some conflict or some, something that's been an area of our life where we haven't experienced a lot of power. And that's like a performance. How are we going to do in crunch time, in the moment of truth? So that would be a performance for us. Does it make sense what I'm talking about? But we have a lot of practices around here. And the reason we call them practices is because we need to practice that it's not something that happens, and guess what? When you practice it, just like an ex in being an expert performer, you make a lot of mistakes. But if you look at the self-talk, we don't call it a mistake, we call it a failure. And we don't say, I, you, know, you know, you say, I failed, I'm a failure. Instead of saying, no, it's just giving me feedback, and all I gotta do is adjust something. So the elite athletes know, they have a strong sense of what we call strong self-efficacy, which is another way of saying they have a lot of faith and conviction in their abilities to meet whatever comes at them, that they see stress as a challenge, not as a curse or not as something that can't be handled, but something that not only can I handle it, I raise my energy because I know 
that the only reason I'm not, I'm not being successful or accomplishing what I want to accomplish is because I'm not making the right effort or I need to get more skills and knowledge. I can learn more and I need to practice more and that I will eventually get there. But someone else will say, I'm not talented enough or, you know, the devil made me do it or this one. But there's never, the attribution is always outside of themselves. So if you think about it from a logical point of view, if you don't have any control, you're screwed. You know, anxiety is what you're supposed to feel because you oh, I, I can't control that. The locus control is out there. It's got to be inside and realize, no, it's us that can choose to respond to it in a way that creates energy where we say, okay, I can do that. How do I do this? And this is why when we talk about the factors of enlightenment, one of them happens to be investigation. And so when we can investigate, when we can become interested in how this mind-body works, then it changes our relationship to it. Does this make sense? What I'm, what I'm talking about, and so it's just really, really it's this idea of, of being mindful, presence of mind, and then attending to the essentials. And I like to use the example of uh, airplane uh, pilots because they train in the simulators, and the expert, you know, so if you, you know, so they know most of the crashes occur during takeoffs and landings. So that should tell you where your focus should be, right? When you're, when, you're, when you're taking off and when you're landing, you better be really focused. And then you have all of these instrument panels. And so the novice is trying to do everything. And the expert knows there's only two or three things. And there's a sequence in how you look at things. And it's the same with us. All we have to do back, you know, I tell my clients all the time, go back to basic fundamentals. You know, for us, it's breathing in, breathing out. Being in the body, it's that simple. Okay, yeah, but it's going to be bad and I'm going to lose my job and all that. It's like, wait a minute. How about being here now? Right now, there's nothing wrong. Everything's fine. But yeah, and it happened to me 10 years ago. Okay, so you want to project 10 years into now. Instead of realizing, no, that it, that's, that's a lie. It's not what's happening. Right here is the only time that exists. And if we can be in the now and really know we're in the now, then we're fine. And then if we're in the now, we can start to develop mindfulness. And one aspect of mindfulness is this uh, bare attention. And it's bare, being paying bare attention to what's going on. Now, I, I got into this because I had chronic pain. And, and when I taught in the Center for Mindfulness in the Stress Reduction Clinic, I had clients that I work with, and they would say, I'm in pain all day. I'm always in pain, constant pain. And I used to think the same thing. So we'd have them do this exercise where they notice pleasant events. And so what happens is because with chronic pain, there's this, we have this belief that where we live in, what we experienced before, so we're not even really in the pain. It's the memory of the pain that we're experiencing. And then that becomes our reality. I'll give you an example. Growing up, I don't know if you folks had this, this experience, but going to the dentist and hearing the drill had a certain impact on me. I don't, I don't know about you folks, but it had an impact. And so when I started doing this practice, I said, okay, I'm going to be with the bare sensations when he starts drilling. And what I found is that the pressure, and he was drilling, and it was my memory of the previous pain that I was experiencing, but once I could just be with the sensations, it's this pressure, not the sound of the drill, then it was fine, just like with pain, okay? Or instead of saying pain, there's this, this twisting, this burning, or this the sensation, just dealing with the sensation, not calling it pain, not calling it my knee, 
that I'm de-identifying with it so there's this space and it's tolerable. And this is how it is with, with mental realm, the physical realm, that, that there's this ability where we can become aware from this relaxed receptivity of what's going on. And by doing it that way, we, we create, like when we perceive things, there's a receptive part of, of the perception and then there's an active part. The, the receptive part is very short. And so part of this practice of insight meditation is to make that receptive part longer. And the example I like to use is, like before they had the numbers on the buses, and I used to live in, in Boston, and so you'd be running in from the train, get to catch the bus, and you're running, and you got to run around to the front to see where the bus is going. So I'd run in there, and so here's what we, I, we would typically, typically do, and this is what I did. You run around, and you look, and you see the letter B, then you see the letter R, and you, then you run and get on the bus. Then you end up in Bridgewater, and you're supposed to be going to Brockton. So how did that happen? Well, because I didn't spend enough time to say one more letter. That's all it took. Be our I. That's all it took. And this is what we do all the time with our experience. That we, we, we are so, because the mind is, and of course this probably goes back to when, when we were, you know, kind of on the first chakra, you know, just survival. And, you know, you hear something or you do something, it's like you got to know what's going on before it happens. And so it's very, very efficient, but it's not accurate. <laughs> and so, and we spend, and this is, you know, and I think it was uh, David Fromm that said that if we just perceive what actually happens and compare it to what we thought was going to happen, that we could, we could really see and that there's, we could do that forever and we would keep learning things. There's no end to how much we can learn just by that, that practice of looking at what is versus what we expect or what we thought. But there has to be this willingness to see things and this self-honesty to see things, even if it means things we hold near and dear to us or we've been doing for 25 years is invalidated. So that's where, once again, that's where the faith and the confidence comes in to really be willing to see what is. And so this simple exercise of just being with things as if it, you're with it for the first time and even more than that creating this space between stimulus and response so that we're able to just allow what is happening to speak to us not to interpret because this is what we do this is why we call it the path of purification because we assume what we see and then we build onto it and then it, all of these proliferations on it and uh, the bare data is not even registered because it's overlaid. It's like I used to like say, you know, we got on glasses, you know, and of course, if I'm worried about failing in my activity, whether it's a sporting event or engaging in daily life, if there's fear, then it, it's usually below what I would call, you know, if I don't, something doesn't happen, then the hate glasses come on and everything I see is hate and it's usually looked inside. So I'm not adequate. I hate myself. But then it gets projected on you. You made me do this. It's your fault. You just walked in the room at the wrong time and broke my concentration. You know, or some excuse like that. But the reality is, it's, it's uh, our ability to go inside and just be with what is, no matter what. And, and part of it, and this is what we know from being mindful, is that when we are mindful of things, even if it's just sounds, they arise and they pass away. They're, they're impermanent. 
And because they're impermanent, you know, sometimes it causes suffering. Because if it's a nice sound, and we're kind of getting into it, and it goes away, then we suffer. Because we act like it's not supposed to go away. And so this is, this is what happens. And then uh, this, this whole idea, if you look and see, you know, we say that we have a self, but, you know, where is it located? you do that little exercise who am I am I my arms am I my legs am, am, you know I'm a man I'm a son and all you at the bottom of it what is it there's a being inside of us you can feel it you can know it but you can't find it you can't find it there's nowhere to be found there's nowhere and everywhere you might say and so but that's way too scary to deal with that stuff but this is what happens when we become mindful we realize things arise and they pass away under certain conditions certain things happen and so we start to take things less personally so if you're driving like I'm driving over here and somebody cuts you off you don't take it personally and if you let them get it go in and they look at you like what took you so long you don't let it bother you just notice and even if there's this flutter like you just want to say something and you want to hit that horn and you say, okay, that's just, you know, you know, that's, you know, that person is, you know, why let their bad behavior affect you? And so we start to realize, no, we don't have to be born, but we have this self-importance and we have this right, you know. They don't know who they're messing with. <laughs> this, is, this, is what, this is what we do. And so part of it is if we can start to, to just be with it and realize that, Part of the problem, part of the challenge is that each moment is arising and unfolding without any prediction of what it is. You know, it's unfolding, it's unknown. But the idea is to know and to get to know it and to see it and get to, but really get to know this mind body process that we, we live in and understand when, when the hate is in the mind, we see things a certain way. When there's greed in the mind, we see things a certain way. When there's generosity in the mind, when there's love, when there's compassion in the mind, we see a certain way. So when I talk about the two wolves, obviously that second wolf, those, those divine principles like love and compassion and stuff, if we connect with those and try to live through those principles, it might be different. And the research says that, that when we're in the positivity, when we're in a positive mind state, our cognitive functioning is, is more accurate. That means our ability to think in feel and to perceive things is expanded. I think the happiness advantage talked about that and there's some stuff here that I'd like to read because um, anybody know why they call uh, drugs dope? Anybody know why they call it dope? Because of dopamine. So so this is uh, Sean Anker and he's talking about um, happiness. Uh, brain positivity. He said, um, so job success is a pr predicted by, not by IQ, uh, a little bit by social intelligence, a little by emotional intelligence, but the real thing is your optimism levels. It's optimism levels, your social support, and your ability to see stress as a challenge instead of a threat. Isn't that interesting? And so he says, the key is to raise somebody's level of positivity in the present. Then their brain experiences what we now call a happiness advantage, which is your brain at positive performs significantly better than it does at negative, neutral, or stressed. So that's what we talk about right after it. You know, you learn how to abandon unwholesome and learn how to 
bring into existence wholesome qualities. Say number one, brain at positivity is 31% more productive. Doctors are 19% faster, more accurate at coming up with correct diagnoses. Now they have a thing called anchoring, and he did a study, and what they found is if you if you give the doctor some chocolate, uh, that their anchoring goes way down and their accuracy goes up, because it's just like anything else. When you anticipate something good happening, put your mind in this positive mind state, and you're happy. But we tend to do the opposite. Not only do we think everything's going to go wrong, but we have a picture and we can play it out in our mind exactly how it's going to go down. So it's the opposite of that, and that, that decreases our happiness. It says we think we have to be successful, then be happier, but the opposite is true, that we're happy first, and then we're successful. What we need to be able to do is to reverse this formula so we can start to see what our brains are actually capable of because dopamine, which floods into your system when you're positive, has two functions. Not only does it make you happier, it turns on all of the learning centers in your brain, allowing you to adapt to the world in a different way. So think about that. So think about that for a moment. That just by doing this practice, not you doing it because you should, it makes you happier. You know? And if somebody calls you a dope because you're experiencing dopamine, that's all right. <laughs> that's all right. You know, and that's free and it's, you know, it's different. That's what we call a natural high. And so this is what's exciting. It's really simple. It's just really understanding how we are living and seeing if, you know, we can be mindful and see, okay, this is wholesome, this is helpful, this is not. This is skillful, this is not. And not go into the story about why we didn't get somewhere or why something's not happening, but really being able to go in the inside and really start off with, you know, well, what do we want? You know, you know what do we value? So like I said, so our belief systems create the thoughts we have. And the thinking is really, really important. And I, I don't want to talk a lot more, but the thinking is really important. And I was doing some research on thinking because I was getting interviewed um, and people were asking me about mindfulness and people were giving different definitions. And some people have this mistaken notion that if you're mindful, you will stop your thinking or your, stop, your thoughts will stop, even especially that what I call the negative committee, that negative self-talk, that it will stop. Oh, good luck with that one. <laughs> what actually happens, we actually thinking is really important. And, and I learned this with working with my athletes. I say, okay, it's what I call directed thought, or what we call in here is applied thought. So if you think about your hand, your right hand, your right palm, where does your mind go? Unless you say, no, George, I'm not doing anything you say. Then that's different. But you get what I'm saying? So it's like, so understanding what, what, what to focus on. Um, and so the self-talk, which goes on on the, low, on the down low, using the, the street slang, on the down low, is creating how we're feeling. So when we talk about performance, we call what we call forethought. So I try to explain to my clients that it's not what you're thinking just before competition is all the thinking you're doing before and, and your whole concept of, of, of what you expect, how you see yourself, how you see the situation, that there's thoughts and there's these thoughts because we organize, you know, it's, there's a, we, we create with the word. And so whatever we are saying, the self-talk, that's what, whatever we're doing, there's some self-talk telling us 
that this is what we should do. But it comes from belief systems about how we think things are or are not. And like I said, your beliefs become your thoughts. So if you have core values, the value is to be in the now or be here now, then you can work backwards. If that's your value, then, you know, you got to change your habit. And to change your habit, you got to change your actions. And to change your actions, you got to change your words. And change your words, you got to change your thoughts. And so this whole process is about observing and seeing what kind of thoughts we're thinking. And sometimes you're hating somebody, you just say love. You know, and you focus. That's why we have love and kindness and, and the Brahma Viharas. But it's really about changing how we're thinking and understanding certain thoughts lead to positive actions and certain thoughts lead to negative actions. So thinking is really important. And sometimes thinking on purpose is, is a good thing, if it makes sense. So, and so we're talking about cognitive processes. It says we organize, you know, most courses of action are initially organized in thought. People's beliefs in their efficacy shape the types of anticipatory scenarios they construct and rehearse. Uh, a couple of years ago, I read a book called Brain Maps. Anybody know about that book? Read it? Well, anyway, it, it, what he talks about is that these virtual maps that, like, see how I'm moving my hand? There's a this peripersonal space and the proprioception system. There's a, there's a virtual map in there that's actually allowing me to do that. So everything is mapped out. So when you think of something, there's a virtual map of how we're going to do it. But we don't know it. But if we get to know it and, and get to understand how to, how to access it, it's helpful because that's why you have somebody, I'm not picking on people, but you know somebody like Michael Jackson who kept getting the, the surgery because his self-image was dictating what he was doing. So he couldn't see reality. He was seeing that self-image. And, and if you don't get that one, what you'll get is you have people who get a limb removed and then they have phantom limb syndrome. You ever hear that? Yeah. Hearing that? Well, why is that possible? Well, because the virtual map hasn't changed. The virtual map still thinks there's an arm there. And so there's a way of relating in some of the physical things like Tai Chi and other things, yoga, where we start embodying and we, 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 we reconstruct the body, the inner map. It's really helpful. But this is how powerful this is because your belief systems are so powerful that I, I remember reading a study where this guy had split personality, a multiple personality disorder. And in one personality, he was diabetic and the other one, he wasn't. Now, you figure that one out. <laughs> but that's how powerful our beliefs are. And so we got to understand. And so it's really as simple as, you know, like I quote Dr. Dre all the time. Because one of the lines of his, his uh, rap songs, I have my mind on money and money on my mind. That's meditation. <laughs> so it's not all a meditation, but it's definitely contemplation. Because whatever your mind is on, that's what becomes your reality. So a lot of us, or most of the time, the, there's things on our mind that we're not minding and they lead to things and we say well how did that happen hello <laughs> we got to see but we don't look inside because we're always out here and so this is an internal process and it's not only an internal process but like I offer you teachings we offer you teachings and the idea is is to go inside to see if it's true so we give you the information you reflect on it and you do the rise reflection or whatever but then when you bring the mindfulness, when you bring the, the concentration, you bring the clearly knowing, you bring the diligence into it, 
then you can see. You might have the experience. Okay, I can see that. And that's what this practice is about. It's about insight. That's why they call it insight, to be able to have a direct experience of what is being offered. And when we get that, then we start to develop this strong sense of, this strong self-efficacy, or we, we go from faith to conviction. We start to understand, and then the rich get richer. That's why you get somebody like a Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant. They're looking to get better. They know that when they get in a high state of arousal, they're close to being in the zone. So they see it, oh, it's a challenge. All I got to do is just develop a skill or get some more knowledge, and, and it's fine. But they also know that I'm going to make mistakes, or things are not going to turn out well. But then it just tells me I need to work on, on something else. But, you know, you got to be willing, you know, it's like Wayne Gretzky said, you know, he's a, um, he was a hockey player. He said, you can't score if you don't shoot. So if you're paralyzed with fear and you don't shoot, oh, I didn't miss, well, well you ain't going to win either because you got to shoot. But if you're afraid to shoot, the fear of failure, that's what it does. It paralyzes us. It puts us in that freeze mode. And you try not to lose and you lose. I suspect that's what happened to I was watching uh, Liverpool was, uh, uh, soccer. They were up three to nothing, and the other team scored three goals in like a minute and a half or three minutes. It was amazing. And that, that cost them the whole championship because now the other team ahead of them has more points. And this has happened, and, it's, and it, part of it, but in that, t- in that sense, I'm not so sure it was they were trying to lose. The other team woke up and just said, hey, and they just took it to them. So, but it was just instead of, because it seemed like once they scored the third goal, their whole energy level went up. So they, they saw it as a challenge, like, okay, now we got to go. And that, and, that, and that energy was higher than Liverpool. That's the only way you score three in a row like that, because Liverpool was still in cruise mode, mode, thinking, okay, I can stay here. No, they needed to raise their energy to meet Liverpool. And that's how we have to do it, is when, when the challenges come to us, are we going to withdraw energy or are we going to bring more energy in? And we're going to ask, well, how do I do this? What are the basic principles involved in dealing with this, this issue? So I probably talked more than I wanted to, but you at least got a sense of what I'm offering here. Make sense? So what I'd like to do is just um, take a moment and, and then we'll move into Q&A. All right, so just a moment of silence. And I'll ring the bell, and let's see if we can just be still and, and just allow the sound of the bell to arise and pass away. I must have hit that pretty hard. It rang for a long time. <laughs> okay. Questions? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.